Well, here we are, uh, turning the corner uh, to Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, this is really what we've been working to all along uh, in the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, maybe even the sermon that was preached to the Hebrews. Uh, all the stuff that we've been talking about, uh, the preeminence of Jesus, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, His superiority to angels, to Moses, to the Aaronic priesthood, to the entire Old Covenant, all of that was leading to this. Uh, this is what the pastor uh, wants to say. He's been alluding to it all along, so it's come up before, but now he's, he crystallizes it, and this is what he wants to say to us. Yeah, you remember that the book of Hebrews is written to a desperate people, uh, to a people who are so beaten down Uh, with difficulties, with troubles, with suffering, uh, that they are contemplating walking back their Christian faith and going back into what they perceive to be the safety of their old Jewish uh, practices. Uh, Their suffering is such that they're ready to give up. They're ready to throw in the towel. Uh, The book of Hebrews then, one of the preachers that I read this week said, uh, it is intense public pastoral counseling, uh, where he is seeking to encourage them not to do that. At every point, uh, he's writing to them and, and trying to help them understand the nature of their difficulties and, and trying to build them into becoming the kind of people uh, who can cope with the brutal realities of life. And, and as such, uh, the book of Hebrews is very pertinent to us because I don't know that there has been a culture uh, that is less adept uh, at handling the brutal difficulties of life than are we. Uh, We are bombarded routinely uh, with how to live our best lives now. We're told that the purchase of a certain product, a certain automobile, uh, and happiness is right around the corner if you can just get on board with that. Uh, This actually runs pretty deeply Uh, There is a theological problem uh, that is called theodicy. I don't know if you've heard of that. If you haven't heard the the word before, you know exactly what it is. Uh, That's the cry or that's the attempt of theologians to defend God against the cry um, of evil existing in a world where God is supposed to be in control. Uh, So this is a constant thing that crops up when uh, there is public evil or when there is kind of massive injustice, or even when there's natural disaster. Uh, I remember post-9-11, there was this great hue and cry. How could God let this happen? Shortly on the heels of that, I think, at least it was in my experience as I remember it, uh, the tsunami uh, that was so horrific in the South Pacific. And again, you know, the pundits, the editorialists, right? How can God let this happen? And they run to the pastors and say, uh, how can God... Uh, let this happen. Uh, A book was written. In fact, I saw that Rabbi Kushner uh, died this past week, but he wrote the book, uh, How Can Bad Things Happen to Good People? Is that what it was? Some some title like that. But that quandary of evil, a powerful God, a sovereign God, and an omniscient and omnipresent and omnipowerful God, Uh, permits evil to exist. Why? How can that happen? Has he lost control? Uh, The questions, again, crop up 
uh, with regularity, and they exist, I think, in the heart of most human beings. Uh, You can, I mean, even go back to that riveting scene that's very complex and very hard to maintain your attention in the Brothers Karamazov, uh, where one of the brothers says, the, the atheist brother says to his uh, monk brother, uh, you know, the evil of uh, tragedy coming upon children is enough for me to throw away the entirety of the Christian faith. I think it's interesting that Charles Taylor, very wise Canadian philosopher, uh, wrote that, that such questions really weren't all that prevalent 500 years ago. And even before that, the question hardly ever came up. And he tries to make the point in his book about the secular age uh, that that question only came up when people start, started beginning to think that they knew how the world ought to be run. Uh, when kind of post-enlightenment, uh, Taylor would say post-reformation, people began to get the idea, we know how things ought to be run, <clears throat> and so we presume, C.S. Lewis said, to put God in the dock and say, you know, you're the one who's to be accused. And so you've got these existentialist playwrights putting God in the dock and saying, God is the one who's to blame. He's the one who's to blame for all of the evil that has descended upon us. Well, that kind of takes root in our own hearts in a very private way, you know, when we are confronted with the, the difficulties of our own lives, the opposition of the world, our dashed dreams, our unsettled relationships, the way that harsh words can undo us. There's a lyric that keeps cropping up. It was a guy that had a one-hit wonder uh, way back in the day, but the opening lyric of a song that he sang was, harsh words are spoken, promises are broken, old wounds are opened, and love walks out that door. And you have got places in your relationships where that's true. Uh, Broken promises, casual deceptions, all of the rest. Uh, Archibald Alexander mentions them in the quote that's at the front of your bulletin. Uh, You can take a look at that later. Uh, What do we do with those difficulties? Well, again, you know, the kind of normal, in the pew, on the street, relationship that all of us have with those kinds of difficulties takes some thinking because our, the, the, the world in which we live has not prepared us to answer those questions well, although the writer of Hebrews gets right uh, to the heart of it. So again, he's writing to people who are disrupted. He's writing to people who are angry, who are disappointed, uh, who again are so undone that they're thinking about walking back their faith, and he's saying don't do it. And there are reasons not to do it. So I'm going to read the first 17 verses uh, of the letter to the Hebrews. Um, I'm going to read out of the NIV, the old NIV, uh, because it's got a couple of words that I memorized a long time ago that I'd be bereft without. Uh, But hear this word from God. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, 
and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are still illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees, make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears." Thus far, the reading of God's Word. I don't know if we can get through it all today, but let's see what we can do. Uh, The principal metaphor, uh, obviously, from the get-go is strenuous athletic competition. Uh, The word for race in verse 1 implies pain or agony. That's actually the Greek word. Uh, The same is in view in verse 4. The word is translated struggle. Uh, Verse 12 returns to the theme of the race with a picture of feeble or drooping arms and weak knees. So it is strenuous competition. Don't think golf. Uh, And and don't even think of the short burst of a sprint or a high jump. Uh, This is uh, more like uh, a marathon or decathlon. Actually, some of the commentators uh, suggest ancient Greek pentathlon, where they had to run, they had to jump, they had to throw things. And uh, just when they were exhausted, they had to wrestle each other. Uh, So that which would uh, uh, be a grueling effort, that which would um, make you exhausted, make you absolutely worn out, that's the metaphor. That's what the writer is saying. It is like to live as a Christian. Endurance is highlighted uh, in verse 7. It was mentioned back in chapter 10. Uh, and, and this notion of this being the way that you are to think about what it is like to live in Christ doesn't rest easy on our ears, does it? I mean, it, it's quite the opposite, quite antithetical to prosperity theology. It is it's completely the opposite of basically what we're taught uh, to think about when we watch Christianity on TV. 
Uh, we are told stories of uh, going from strength to strength, from riches to more riches, to being blessed, and that everything is on an upward trajectory. And that's exactly the opposite of what the writer here is saying. He's saying it is a long slog. You need endurance. Uh, You are going to be exhausted. You're going to be at the very end of your rope. That's what it's going to feel like. Uh, One of my pastors told me one time that what we Christians needed was a good swamp theology. Uh, The idea of plodding, your feet getting stuck in the mud, having to lift one foot and put it in front of the other, maybe even losing a shoe while you did that. And what the writer says is the best help for swamp theology, the best help for a long slog is a good long look at Jesus. And that's where we are starting in verse 2. Tim got a jump on this last week, and rightly so. You could make the case that these uh, first three verses belong with chapter 11. But in any case, every sermon, you know, really ought to be an invitation to take a good long look at Jesus. Pay attention to Him. Take a very close look at Him. He's called here uh, the author and perfecter of faith. Uh, That word's translated elsewhere, the founder and perfecter or the pioneer and perfecter of faith. The same thing was said, or a similar thing at least, in chapter 2. If you remember back that far, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing, bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Taking a good long look at Jesus. Jesus is the founder of salvation. He's the perfecter of faith. No one was ever so attuned to and reliant upon the Word and the promises of God as Jesus. And this is what it looked like. And any focus on Jesus has got to have the cross at its center, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning at shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We really ought to sing those Good Friday songs more than just on Good Friday. Thing when I survey the wondrous cross pretty routinely, because that's the invitation here is take a good long look at Jesus, fix your eyes, fix your attention, pay close attention, don't let it be distorted by a popular vision, don't let it be distorted by a TV show or by a popular novel or even by a children's Bible, don't let it be distorted. Make sure that you focus in on what Jesus is doing as he endures the cross, scorning its shame. And it's interesting that, you know, what is being said here is being said elsewhere as well, but the thing to pay attention to in the life of Jesus is the cross. And again, where our attention wants to go, we want to go to the miracles, the the wowie-zowie stuff. And that had its own wowie-zowie capacity even in the Gospels. The people were amazed. They sat up and paid attention Jesus even says to them, I think it's in John chapter 10, if you can't believe my words, at least believe the miracles, because they give you a hint that he's worth listening to. Uh, But it's not the miracles that you should pay attention to, and it's not even the teaching that is the most amazing thing about Jesus. And everybody was amazed at his teaching. And we love to go to his teaching, and we love to cite the pithy statements 
That passage that was read out of Matthew chapter 11 this morning uh, is it's just one of the best things ever written. You could pay attention to where Jesus is praying. I thank you, God, uh, that you have revealed these things not to the wise and learned, but to little children. Uh, that sentiment, that conviction is stunning and turns the whole world upside down. But when we are invited to take a look at Jesus, it's not at the miracles, it's not at his actions, it's not at his teachings, but rather it's at the cross. Pay attention to the cross. Scorning, it's shame. The shame was a lot worse than the pain. No one has ever or will ever die such a death. No one will ever say at the point of death, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, Jesus bearing the sins of his people is forsaken by his Father. And that's a deep reality. Theologians wrangle, albeit in a holy way. But I think even the angels ponder and they close their mouths the way Job did. Remember Job at the end? He says, I cover my mouth with my hand. When you ponder the cross and when you see what's taking place there, you know, we sing that song, let us wonder, grace and justice, join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. What a lyric. Grace and justice, holding hands, pointing together to the cross. I mean, this is the heartbeat. Uh, if you're just visiting If you've never heard this before, this is the center of the Christian faith, that we understand our predicament is such that we are natively, instinctively, compulsively uh, rebellious and self-centered. And this produces a mountain, a Mount Everest of debt uh, that has to be resolved. Jesus takes that debt on himself on the cross. That's why we pay attention to the cross. And to receive God's grace, to receive his mercy, means to identify yourself with Jesus, to, to glom onto him. Is that the language that we would use? I saw this remarkable, stupid trick one time. Uh, I don't know if you're fans of David Letterman. I'm not a huge fan. I had friends who were huge fans, and they would alert me to the best of his stuff. But he had, he had a series of stupid tricks. And one of them is he put on a suit, an entire suit, of Velcro. And then he put up a wall that had the other side of the Velcro. I don't know what you call that. And he ran across the stage and he jumped onto a little mini tramp, little trampoline, and he splatted himself up against the wall and he held. And it was hilarious. And all of his fans thought that's just amazing wit and comedy. And he's hung on the wall. Um, That's what we do with Jesus in order to receive the grace of God and the benefits of his redemption is we splat ourselves up against Jesus. We adhere ourselves to him. Theologians call this union with Christ. And by that union with Christ, our sins are paid for at the cross. And what is beyond belief is that his righteousness is given as a free gift to those who believe. 
So the writer says, pay very close attention, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith. Now, because of that, our suffering is not meaningless and is not outside God's purposes. It's very interesting the way the writer phrases this. He says, look, you've forgotten what you used to know. You've forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. And he goes back and quotes Proverbs chapter 3. And I've been saying this, and Tim said it a lot last week as well, that all through Hebrews, uh, the writer is pointing them back to the Old Testament, or he's assuming that they're very familiar with the Old Testament. But Proverbs 3 is quoted, and he says, My son, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. Don't lose heart when he disciplines you. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. As a son. That's a little hint. It's a little glimpse. It's a little crack through which this blinding light comes in the book of Proverbs. You really understand what's going on here when you're taught to call God your Father. This is implicit when we call God our Father, which is one of the most prominent features of the Christian faith. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, our Father. The Spirit that the Father sends is the Spirit of Sonship, by which we cry, Abba, Father. That catechism answer that is printed in the bulletin is worth your reflection later in the day. Uh, What do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? And the answer is delicious. I believe that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, who still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence, is my God and Father because of Christ the Son. And I trust him so completely that I do not doubt that he will provide whatever I need for body and soul and will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends upon me in this sad world. God is able to do this because he's almighty God, and he desires to do this because he's my faithful father. You know, they had also forgotten Psalm 119. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Now I keep your word. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. So these difficulties that come at you are God's good mercy to you. He is disciplining you. He is loving you. He's getting you ready for heaven. He's enabling you to let go your too eager grasp of this world. That's one of Alexander's words. As Tim was praying, he's purifying your heart like gold, like silver, with the adversity that he brings into your life. George MacDonald has a great saying He says, everything difficult indicates something more than our theory of life yet embraces. And I want to be careful to take a step back here, because I can talk about this lightly and blithely. And I know that some of you, some of us, have suffered grievously. We've suffered grievously, and you might be able to think, Yeah, there's a certain level of suffering where I can see the benefit, but there's another level where there's no benefit at all. 
And that's what McDonald is addressing. You know, there are things that hit you that don't yet fit into your theory of life. I remember meeting parents in a hospital. Uh, Their son had multiple maladies, uh, both physical and cognitive uh, difficulties. They had the highest level of medical expertise being applied to them. And it was a long, sustained treatment. That, That boy is actually an adult now. But I remember visiting him in the hospital, and I asked them, what do you think of that verse? The Lord has heard the cry of the afflicted. Is that true? And I'll never forget. Her name was Didi. Didi said, it is absolutely true. It is absolutely true that the Lord has heard the cry of the afflicted. That's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to remind Uh, the folks here who are tempted to give up. It is absolutely true that the Lord hears the cry of the the afflicted. Remember that He is your Father. Don't forget that. And then he gets to this therefore. Of course, therefore is always a big word uh, when you're reading these letters. He says, therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. Again, a reference to the Old Testament, Isaiah 35 where the Lord said to the people of Israel, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. So making level or straight paths could be understood as staying in your running lane or on the hiking path that winds through the woods. This will keep you from twisting your ankles and your knees. And then he says, make every effort, in verse 14. I mean, this is the upshot. All that Christ has done, all that he is capable of doing, the sovereignty of God over all of your struggles so that they are all sanctifying you. I love what Alexander says. He says, be more solicitous that the suffering be sanctified than that it be removed. That, that takes some head-scratching. Pray more that the suffering would be sanctified than that it would be removed. Now, you can pray that it be removed. Who wouldn't? Pray more. But with all of that, there's an outflow. Make every effort. Striving, I think is what the ESV says, to live in peace with all men. And that's a, it's a little bit of a slam on the brakes at this point. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. In the next chapter, God is called the God of all peace. You remember back in chapter 7, Melchizedek was called the king of peace because he was the king of Salem. Again, the Old Testament is in view. Psalm 34, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. But for these folks, and for for us, in times of duress, when the hostility of the world is pressing in, peace is hard to come by, and so we need to hear the exhortation. Make every effort to live at peace with all men. Every effort. Don't rest 
until you're at peace with people. And this means you're going to have to get in touch with them. This means you're going to have to have conversations. This means that you're going to have to hear things you might not want to hear. Uh, But there is a beauty in the reconciliation that is the quite natural outflow of God having reconciled himself to us and us to himself. Make every effort. Don't waste a moment to live at peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Those are coupled together. This holiness that moves us toward seeing the Lord I mean, this is the goal, right? One of the commentators says, this kind of holiness, which reflects the pure goodness of God, springs from single-minded love of God, not from human applause. It's consistent with a longing to see the Lord, who is all holy, not with a lust to be seen by men. We're looking at this in this rigorous Sunday school class on evangelical Pharisees, and, and just the one of the big problems of the Pharisees is their, their um, religious observance was all a show. It was only designed for other people to see. It was only designed for them to gather applause. It's horrific when you think about it. People so familiar with the Bible, so familiar with the scriptures, so devoted to the study of them, missed Jesus when he was standing right in front of them. And so the writer of Hebrews says, make every effort, live at peace, be holy. Get rid of everything that is going to mitigate against that holiness, the holiness with which you see the Lord. Paul says a very similar thing to Timothy. He says, flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And I do want to take a step back and say, you have to understand holiness biblically in a New Testament way as being essentially relational. There's no such thing as an isolated purity. There's no such thing as you, you know, somehow purifying your act and getting everything just so, so that you are pure. Holiness has to do with how you love God and how you love one another. It has to do with the nitty-gritty of relationships, and that's what the the writer is pulling us towards. You're reminded of Jesus' Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. But then he says, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. And he's not saying this to individuals, see to it that you don't miss the grace of God. He's saying, see to it that no one in your community misses the grace of God. It's a collective effort. So it's got a relational capacity woven into it. It's a horrifying possibility that someone would miss the grace of God, but this is the theme of the letter. Back in chapter 4, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So again, he's, he's exhorting them, don't apostatize, don't turn back, don't walk away. And then this, this is a little bit relentless. He says, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and to defile many. We were looking at this in the prayer meeting. Uh, I needed help in understanding the passage. 
needed the group to pray through it with me. And someone noticed that in the ESV, root of bitterness is in quotes. And we were wondering what that was about. Well, it turns out it's a quote from Deuteronomy 29. And if you're familiar with the book of Deuteronomy, chapters 27, 28, 29 are the conclusion uh, of the covenantal structure of Deuteronomy in which are the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience. And so what happens to that root of bitterness is a cursing falls upon it. This is from Deuteronomy 29. I'm going to read it to you. Uh, Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. So again, I mean, I almost feel like if we were in a less formal setting, we should break now and get into circles and pray. And I hope you'll have time to do that with others this week, maybe even this afternoon. Bitterness causes trouble. It can destroy a community. The writer here says that many become defiled. It causes trouble. It defiles many. It incurs God's judgment in that it is tantamount to turning away from the Lord. And the whole community gets judged. That's what it means when it says the sweeping away of moist and dry. And the example that is given is Esau. And it's a very troubling example, frankly. I often think of Esau as foolish, but common Jewish understanding was that he was evil. And so he was. And the decision that he made to sell his birthright, even though he regretted it, even though he wanted to go back from it, was a step taken for which there was no turning back. Sexual immorality gets a mention, but we'll pick up on that in the next chapter. But can you, can you hear the earnestness in this plea? Can you hear what he's saying to the church? He's saying this to the Hebrews, but he's saying it to Carriage Lane. He's saying it to us pastors. He's saying it to the officers. He's saying it to everybody. Make every effort in light of what Jesus has done, in light of the good discipline that God gives you as a father who loves you, in light of all that, make every effort to live at peace, to be holy, to receive the grace of God, so that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. And this is going to be arduous. Again, the whole context is athletic competition. It's supposed to be painful. You expect life to be painful just as you expect this athletic competition to be painful. But when we go back to the top of the chapter, I glossed over it. I skipped it, actually. You see that Jesus did this for the joy set before him. And that's really puzzling. And again, the theologians, the commentators will, you know, dig around to say precisely what kind of joy. Uh, But it really was the joy of completing his work of reconciliation. For that joy of completing the work that the Father had had given him to do, for that joy... Uh, He endured the cross, he scorned its shame, despised its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. 
You, you remember in Luke 15, he told the story to the Pharisees who were grumbling, and they were grumbling thoroughly because he was befriending uh, sinners and tax collectors. And he told three stories. He told the story of a lost coin, a lost sheep, and a lost son. And the way that the lost coin and the lost sheep wind up, he talks about the woman so happy that she threw a party when she found the coin. The shepherd so happy that he threw a party when he found the sheep. Uh, But Jesus says, I tell you that in the same way there is joy in heaven when a sinner repents. This is the joy that was set before Jesus. This was the joy that propelled him to the cross. It's the joy over every sinner who repents and returns home, over every sheep that is found, over every son that was dead and is alive again. For that joy, Jesus endured the cross. But here's the wild thing. If you remember in John 15, when Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer, I'm sorry, it's not the prayer. He's instructing them. He teaches the disciples that they were to abide in him so that his joy would be in them and their joy would be full. Jesus wants his joy to be in you. That's what's set before That's the tantalizing prospect. Not simply that you would stay the course. Not simply that you would be faithful to the end. But that his joy would be yours. He prayed, he did pray in his high priestly prayer that they would have the full measure of his joy in them. So we've got set before us joy. Well, I know it's hard to get there. It is hard to get there. We'll be honest with that. This is not an easy thing to live at peace with one another, to be holy, to make sure that we all collectively do not miss the grace of God. But we have that joy set before us. David wrote a song, Psalm 16, you might know this. Uh, the, the last verse of that, it's amazing to hear it in the mouth of Jesus. Uh, but David wrote, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Brothers and sisters, my good friends, it is worth it. It is worth it. Let's pray.